Welcome to the Barrel Room Chronicles. I'm Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward, former bartender, and all-around whiskey aficionado. I travel the world to explore whiskey from every avenue. For the last 20 years, I've been helping others tell their stories through television, film, and other media. But now, I'm taking my love for whiskey and my experience in the entertainment industry to uncover the fascinating stories of the water of life. So kick off your shoes, pour yourself a dram, and join me for this episode of Barrel Room Chronicles. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra-wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. Wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized returns, proving that the returns can be just as robust as your favorite red. It is so easy to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. VinoVest makes it easy to acquire new investments. Equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell, and even drink them whenever you want. Go to httpzen.ai slash barrelroomchronicles to receive two months of fee-free investing. Be sure to mention that Barrel Room Chronicles is helping you save on two months of management fees. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. It is 5 o'clock somewhere, and you've tuned in to Episode 9 of BRC. For those of you who'd like to watch this episode, it's available on our website, YouTube, and Spotify. In today's Tales from the Still, we'll talk to John Ralph about the 2022 San Francisco World Spirits double gold winner, Mad March Hare, and the origins of Irish poutine. Then later in the show, Chef Louise Leonard will tell us about Redheaded Mary. Stay with us. Hello there, this is Carrie Moynihan, and we are here at the Barrel Room Chronicles with John Ralph of the Mad March Hare Irish poutine. So today, we want to get to know John a little bit better. We're going to ask him what his whiskey journey is all about, or his poutine journey, um, and how he's uh, managed to become where, where you are today, John. And where were you born? Where, where did you grow up? And, and did you see yourself in this industry when you were just a little lad? Well, I mean, that's a... How long, how long do we have on this to tell that story? <laughs> but no, uh, th- look, number one, thanks for having me today. Um, I'm always excited to get on and talk about our products, in particular, Mad March Hair. I mean, p- Irish Pudgeen is something that's quite a, a close, uh, close to my heart. But I guess to give you the full story, I was actually born in Texas, of all places. Wow. Um, I know my accent wouldn't really tell you that. But my, my mum and dad, mum's English, dad's Irish, they were here. My grandfather was working with chemical engineer with BP. Long story, they, I popped out, the stork dropped me off when they were living here and they were quite young. And then they decided it's hard to raise a kid on their own in America. So they, they re- re- moved back to Ireland, I think three or four months after I was born. So I never quite got to pick up that Texas twang. Nice. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, the, you know, the whiskey industry, the liquor industry in general, I think it's something that comes quite naturally to uh, to Irish people. It's kind of one of those uh, one of those things, eh? But um, yeah, I mean, my journey's been a, was an interesting one um, into the booze industry as such, as we might call it back home. But I um, I set up a rickshaw company when I was sixteen years old, and through that, rickshaws are things that carry people around around in the back. You run around, drop people off at nightclubs and bars. Kind of that was my introduction to the to the world of nightlife as such, and. Uh, 
I ended up through that setting up the energy drink distribution and energy drinks turned into alcohol. And then uh, we started importing premium spirits to Ireland, sort of being the sort of first premium spirit importer. And we got the distribution rights to brands. Your listeners might know Kettle One, Vodka, Patron Tequila, brands like Campari, Buffalo Trace, a number of sort of very significant global brands or significant brands here in the US, but uh, maybe not so, quite small in Ireland, let's say. So we were kind of the pioneers of the whole premium spirit cocktail culture. I'll keep the story short because it could go for hours. But no, so back then, sort of we built this really cool company with all these great brands. If we were in the United States, it would be a multi-billion dollar organization. In Ireland, a little smaller. Um, and then sort of 2008 came along and obviously the global financial crisis decimated the world, but no, not many places were hit as hard as Ireland. And at that time, we were selling, you know, we were going to bars, we were selling Patron margaritas for $20 or 20 euros a, a drink. And then Ireland uh, ran out of money <laughs> very quickly. So all of a sudden you went from having consumers drinking Patron margaritas or Kettleman uh, martinis, they were then moving to three euro pints of Guinness. And that was a very rapid transformation. So we you know at that time we made our changes to the business. We we adapted with with the, with 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 the uh with the challenges. Uh, but around that time I actually started started a distribution business in China. So what we were doing in Ireland, my friends who were living in Shanghai wanted to do the exact same thing. So I said, hey, let's do that. And I'll 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 go in with you rather than just advise you, I'll I'll be a partner. And with that we brought all the brands. And so this I'll get to the story. This is just to give the background quick enough. No, this is good. Very interesting. And so um yeah, look, we we I started taking the opportunity to fly out to Shanghai every couple of months for a uh, inverted commas board meeting, which was just a great excuse to get out of Ireland and go party in Shanghai for ten days. Um and then but two years in, I was like, you know what? Uh, Shanghai is a lot more fun than Dublin is these days. And uh, so we sold off the distribution rights in Ireland and uh, I got on a plane to Shanghai. And whilst I was there, um, I started, you know, we obviously were supporting our growing distribution business out of, out of China. This is 2011. And then uh, I was doing a bit of consulting work for other brands in the Asia Pacific region. And uh, I was living with a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Egan. And John, John, Johnny Egan and I were friends from Ireland. And uh, if you if you know our business, we we have we now own a whiskey brand called Egan's Irish Whiskey. So that'll give you a quick quick start on that part. But really, the uh, we started Egan's together, and then I started a, a brand called Cocalero. And Cocalero, we launched it into Korea initially, but we really got our success when we hit Japan. And Cocalero now is the number one imported liqueur in Japan. We're bigger than Jägermeister. We're bigger than a lot of major brands that you see over here. And that's that's really the sort of backbone of our business in terms of it gives us the sort of resources and the sort of reach to do passion where the where the true passion lies and that's that's where we get to mad my chair coaching that's that's the background in a, in as abridged and short version as possible i'm sure uh, anyone else has heard me tell this story for many hours longer but uh yeah that's how we got that's how i got to where we are today that's very cool so one little thing mm. what was your was the passion, did the passion come in from riding the little bicycle thingy or? Uh, yeah, I think it was, it was probably what, one of these sort of natural transitions. You start to see, you know, I think it was, you know, you start to get involved in the on-premise and then, you know, whilst I never bartended, I was always very active with the bartender community. I must have done tons and tons of events because when we were starting our business in Ireland, we couldn't afford to hire bartenders. So I quickly learned how to make cocktails and that gave me a, a certain appreciation for the trade. 
So I kind of, I think going through all that kind of just gave me this sort of love of drinks and the social aspect of it. Fun. It's a, it's a, it's one of the most, you know, it's a very lifestyle industry in some respects, right? It's, it's hard work. It is a challenge. And there's some nights where you go out too late and you still have to get up the next morning. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a really social business. And it, you know, it's something that you can never leave. I mean, the amount of people I know who've left the booze industry because, oh, you know what, there's got to be an easier life out there. And you'll find them within six months back in doing another job somewhere. So it's yeah. just, it is that just fun, just sort of engaging industry, very, very personal based, you know. For sure. So let's talk about your journey in America, because you are coming to me live in Newport yes. Beach, California. Um, so indeed. not in Shanghai or Ireland. Not, no, indeed. It's a little bit warmer than Dublin and uh, a little bit different out here than Shanghai. But no, yeah, I was, um, I was coming over here to launch our US business in 2015. I was spending quite a bit of time and I'd always stop off in San Francisco because it was a great, it's a great hub coming out of, coming out of Asia. So I stopped in San Francisco and I had some good friends living in San Francisco. So they were like, oh, come stay with us. So I used it kind of as a base and as a jumping off point for like my 20 state tours around the United States trying to push our products. And then an opportunity came up. You know, San Francisco is a very expensive city. And they were like, oh, why don't you rent a room? There's a room available. I'm like, sure, let's do that. And then uh, someone else moved out and said, hey, let me take the second room because I like this, this place and it's rent controlled and cheap. So, which was unique. Well, it's not unique as San Francisco, but it was a lucky find in San Francisco. Yeah, it's definitely a lucky find. And then I started finding myself spending one month, two months, three months in America, and I wasn't in a rush to go back to Shanghai. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to move to the US. And and our business was starting to get a bit of traction, and things were starting to happen over here. And so, yeah, I took sort of the decision around sort of mid 2015 that I would call San Francisco home. And uh, I'd been probably. Some people probably thought I was living there for a year at that stage, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, um, you know, I took, you know, I was there for six years and, uh, or, or, yeah, six years, mid, late 2020. And uh, obviously the pandemic hit, pre-pandemic, I would have been traveling, you know, building our global business, traveling over 200 days a year. And so, you, you know, one of the things about San Francisco, you know, you don't realize before you live there is the weather's not so hot, right? It's, it's not that postcard California palm trees and blue sky that you uh, you see in all the ads right and you know, coming from ireland i dealt with cloudy weather for most of my life and right. i thought Gee, the pandemic hit and i you know obviously couldn't travel so i was stuck in san francisco and it's, it's a city i love and holds super dearly to my heart but i think the weather was starting to get to me after after about four or five months of of being stuck in the city uh, right. you know i lived in a part of town just beside the presidio and every day, like clockwork, the fog would roll in and you, you wouldn't, the sunshine would be gone. Right. So I had friends down here in Southern California and uh, they were saying, come on down, Orange County, it's, there's no COVID down here. So I <laughs> yeah, was like, the Orange County attitude. Right. So I was like, yeah, why not? Let's, let's, let's take the jump. So I, I managed to coerce my girlfriend into uh, taking the journey down with me and you know, it's it's hard to be living in this part of the world. The weather's beautiful. It's uh, you know, it's it's close enough to LA, so you can go up and have some city life. It's it's a little slower. It's a bit more pedestrian, oh, yeah. but yep. uh, you do it. It's a different it's a different kind of life down here. But you know, things are obviously opening up again. Travel starting again. So uh, yeah, I'll be back on the road a bit more these days. But I think I'll be I'll be happy to come back here. Yeah, I feel you about the weather. Um, as everyone knows, uh, I'm from the Bay Area. I went to uh, school in San Francisco. I grew up in San Jose. And one summer, 
I was taking a summer school class on Tuesdays, Thursdays, but I was still mm. working in San Jose. So I would drive up, you know, every other day and I'd leave my apartment and it's like 85 degrees, 90 degrees already at 7 a.m. And yeah. I'm leaving my depart my apartment with blue jeans on, long sleeve shirt, holding my jacket. And the neighbors are like, what, what's happening <laughs> with this? And I'm like, I'm going to the city. Got to, you know, it's the, it's the microclimates. It's the microclimates. I would be driving. And as soon as I it was on the 680, and as soon as I got to where that Flintstone house is, you know, over there yep. by the Half Moon Bay, oh, up, there comes the clouds. And I went literally on that bridge from having the air conditioning on to putting the heat on over yeah. the course of that bridge. Like the weather's just crazy. So. It's a bizarre one, isn't it? I mean, it's, but it, it what it's great for is has a, it makes a vibrant bar culture, right? So the dark, the dark dive bars of San Francisco are world famous. And yeah. uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, old Carl the Fog rolling in and making sure that we don't want to go outside. Right? So, yeah. But no, it's a great place. So let's talk some more about this Mad March hair. Tell me about the origin and um, how yeah. long has it been out on the market and all of that good stuff. Well, it's a, uh, you know, I, I could start talking about the category itself, because I think that the category itself is really interesting. And then we'll come to how we came to, came to bring Mad March hair to life. But Irish putching, I mean, you'll never meet an Irish person who doesn't have a putching story. It's kind of, it's kind of one of the parts of it, is one of the great uh, attributes of the category. Uh, but putching itself was the original Irish spirit. And by some, by some measures, it's the oldest distilled spirit in the world. It was first distilled by Irish monks in the 6th century AD. And in fact, the, the, earliest sort of, the earliest sort of mentions of barrel aging comes from Irish monks storing their, their putching in barrels as they travel and then noticing it change color, change taste. Now, this, this was by no, I'm not saying this by, no, this by any means the start of the whiskey world, but it was, it was certainly an early precursor to barrel aging spirits as we know it today. But Irish putching is just, it's just got such a, an amazing history and it really captures a kind of rebellious, uh, the sort of rebellious uh, side of Irish culture was one of the key values of, of our, being an Irishman. And uh, the reason why was in 1661, the British uh, outlawed putching. And they did so because, well, Irish people don't like paying tax to the British overlords. They didn't, sorry, didn't like paying tax to the British overlords. So it was a bit of a bone of contention. I'm sure they still don't. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thankfully, we don't anymore, right? But no, the... Um, so in 1661, they, they were trying to tax Irish alcohol. And initially, pretty much every household had a, had a still at home, right? So it was almost like gin in the UK at the time. And in fact, it's, it, there's some fascinating history around um, you know, w women distillation, right? So back then, women were, were managing the household, and they would actually have a small-scale still set up in the kitchen for making their own putching. And it, was, it provided a source of income, and it was also, it was also a great way to wind down on a Friday evening as such. But, um, you know, King, King Charles, he, he was uh, looking to sort of rebuild, the Brit re rebuild Britain after civil war. And so uh, he taxed alcohol and taxed it to the hilt. And knowing the Irish consumption of alcohol was quite, quite high, he felt that that was a great, uh, a great potential revenue source. Of course, we, did, we, would have re we refused to, uh, to pay that tax. And uh, as a result, he then decided, well, one way we could do it is that we will bring in a, a tax the size of your still output. And uh, so we went with smaller stills. And as it, once we got around that, once that was the issue, they then decided to license distilleries. So this was when really the birth of Irish whiskey took place, which was in the uh, sort of early 18th, early 18th century. 
And so instead of uh, having real Irish names on Irish whiskey, you had names like Jameson, Powers, you know, these, these are two, they're essentially Scottish planters or favored by the, uh, favored by the crown because they knew they'd pay their taxes. So these became these large corporate, essentially corporate distillers and Irish, Irish putching production got really shoved underground. And, you know, it was really quite an, it's quite a romantic story, but also kind of sad as well in terms of, you know, the British tried to turn Irish people on each other by getting them to, to, you know, they pay for ratting them out essentially. And, uh, but you get some very romantic stories about putching production. So there's all these funny things about how they used to lay down a piece of wood across the, the trail where, or where they'd be, they start distilling, they'd lay a piece of wood across a trail. And so that as with a, with an iron rod up, up against the wall, but as the police and their horse and carts would come down, the, come down the, uh, come down the avenues, they would knock over the iron rod and that would be like an early warning system. They pack up the stills and run off. Um, and again, these stills were in the middle of the countryside. So one of the great things they used to do is they'd wait until the, uh, wait until the weather got really bad. And then, so once the wind is coming in sideways, wind is coming in hard and the rain is coming in sideways, they fire up the stills because you wouldn't have that telltale smoke drifting up into the air, which was kind of like a, you know, an announcement. Right. Um, and of course, here we are. In Ireland, Come get us. Yeah. In Ireland, we get plenty of wind and rain. So it wasn't, we were able to still quite regularly. But, you know, there was this whole renegade spirit, this rebellious spirit that sort of touching became and it was underground. But it was, you always had, if you go to each town, you'd always have a sort of a, a um, You'd always be able to find out who the local putching maker was, and then you'd be able to you'd be able to uh, procure your uh, your bottles. And uh, you know this thing stayed in Irish culture for over three hundred years after it was made illegal, and it was only legalized in nineteen ninety seven. Would you believe uh, by by an act of of our Irish Congress uh, equivalent? Um, and since then, you know, there's been a couple of commercial products come to market, but I think what what we've had to do and what we're very passionate about is re-educating people on what Pachin is about, number one, but also taking this category to the world. And I think it's a perfect time in terms of where the world is at right now from a craft spirits point of view, because there's not really anything as craft as Irish Pachin, right? It's got such an amazing history. It's got such like such great uh, production credentials and everybody loves Irish spirits. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm Irish, but you, you look yeah. around the world. And I'm not just we... saying you're right because I'm Irish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have, um, I think, you know, what we have within the putching category is a really interesting opportunity to uh, sort of bring this to the world and get consumers passionate about it. And we've done it on a really small base, right? We've done it in, in little pockets, but we have some really passionate fans of the brand now. And, you know, we're, you know hopefully that will turn into more and more and more over time. And we always look at mezcal as kind of our, as kind of like a, a great example because mezcal is tequila's more authentic, uh, sort of illicit cousin. And so what I always say to people, particularly in the trade to help sort of understand where we want to position ourselves, it's we want to be to Irish whiskey as mezcal is to tequila. So nice. it's more authentic, edgy, illicit cousin. And that kind of gets people to go, Oh yeah, I understand that. And then we get into, we get into this discussion around it. So Mad March Hair. Mammoth Chair is a brand I created uh, with a good friend of mine. Um, we initially actually created in partnership with um, with a potato distiller in Dublin. Okay. And so I'll tell you two sides to the, how how this whole thing came about. So there's there's the there's the sort of more boring business side of it, and then there's the sort of more you know how we sort of crafted it into a brand. But from the business perspective, so I was uh, back in Dublin, and I was asked to go visit uh, this large potato farm 
on the north side of Dublin, and they were saying they wanted to get into uh, they wanted to get into to a putching. They wanted to get into distilling, and they'd love to make a putching. So I was like, oh, another another Irish company looking for me to do a bit of free consulting because I'm back from China and I've got international business. It's it's a classic thing with uh, with us Irish people. Anyway, so I went uh, went to meet them, and very impressive organization. I'm blown away by the scale of their business, the professionalism of it. And uh, I met I met the, the the two main farmers, the owners, and we were talking about you know building a distillery, et cetera. And they pointed to the field for the distillery they wanted to build the distillery. And I joke, I, sorry, I am not lying at all. There was two hairs in the middle of the field, bapping it out. And this I is, love it. It's part of the mating ritual. So each year, so people used to think that it was two males going at each other. Was it in it's March actually, too? It was in March. It was in March. <laughs> and I'm not making it up. I promise you, I'm not making it up. But obviously, you know, and that was, I just turned around to them and said, what a cool name for a brand of putching, Mad March Hair. Because there's this saying, I'm sure you've heard it, you're as mad as a March Hare, which means you've gone a little bit nuts. Yeah. And if you actually, you know, if the history of putching was, came in at very high strength and very different strengths or different variables or varying strengths. So you wouldn't really know how strong it was. So you could have one shot and you could be fine, or you could have one shot and you could be on the floor. So it was kind of a funny way to sort of engage with that whole putching imagery about your Madison March hair. I love it. And so that was a fun, that was a great way for us to sort of genesis of an idea. But obviously, it's not a particularly marketable story, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's something that it, 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 it sort of gives a good story. But, you know, this, you know the, one of the things, uh, the way we decided we'd bring this to life from a brand perspective was we kind of, we talked about how people, you know, the crazy putching to sitter. So he'd be sitting on, he'd be sitting, he'd be sitting at the bar, you know, waiting for the bad weather. But as soon as the bad weather would come out, old Paddy or whatever we want to call him, or John, we'll call him for the sake of this, sake of this interview, he would run down the street super excited because it was the rain was coming in sideways and the wind was blowing hard, and everyone used to go, "Jesus, he's mad as a March Hare." And that's kind of the way we wanted to try and position, bring bring the brand to life. And actually, you know, getting deep into it, you know, hairs are such a they're such a uh, important part of Celtic mythology as well, so we can really play into that. And you know, hares are cool. They're cool animals. You know, they they're big. They're they're kind of uh, and there's a great history to them. So, yeah, I think look, that's kind of the genesis and the sort of origin of the brand. Um, and what what year was that that you guys uh, decided to look upon the field to see the the rabbits out there? That would have been 2014. Okay. Um, so we spent 2014. We spent we didn't launch until mid 2016. Um, and we originally launched with a, with totally different packaging. So we were we were very um, we felt that this was the brand we're going to take consumer first, and we were really thinking that this is going to be get consumers into it. So we took it at forty percent, and we played. You know, we we came with a sort of very playful, lively package. We call it. We used uh, we used we had two hairs on the bottle that were kind of very uh, they had glasses on, they had top hats, and you know it was it was kind of it was Alice in Wonderland almost in terms of the you know Mad Hatter's tea party. So we were right. trying to play into that because we thought it was quite engaging from a consumer point of view. And it was. People loved it. Um, but we thought, you know, as we were developing the brand up further, Hutchins not quite there at the consumer level yet. So what we said, we needed to probably, you know, have a rethink about how the brand is positioned and position it more at the bartender, more at the on-trade, which meant leaning more heavily into sort of some of the sort of more uh, more traditional aspects of the brand and giving it a little, a little more of a sort of craft feel as opposed to a very consumer feel. And right. so that's what you see on it now. Our, our hairs look more like they're sort of uh, 
Celtic paintings as such, or they, you, know, you find them on a cave in a cave at Newgrange. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's the direction I think, you know, as we are building this, this category from the ground up, we really need to just work hard with bartenders, get people educated and, and sort of bring them, then bring consumers on a journey as such. Very cool. And so how long has it been in America? We launched it in yeah, 2016. So America, okay. America and Ireland were the first two markets we, we brought it to. Um, and look, we had a varying degrees of success as we, as we got going. Um, you know, Puchin, I think, you know, when you're a drinks marketeer, you, you think that everyone should know what you're doing and everyone should get it. It's so easy. It just makes sense. Right. And it just took a lot more, a lot more time, a lot more education, a lot more, you know, investment into, into really, you know, just talking to people, uh, to really get this thing off the ground. So we initially went to probably a bit wide in terms of opening up maybe seven or eight, maybe 15 states. I think it was actually when we got there. And then, you know, as, as our business developed, we start to realize that we, we own a portfolio of spirits. Uh, we're not just obviously fudging, but as, as we start, we started to realize that to really build this right, we have to really narrow our focus and have that conversation and have it direct. It's not about having a sort of, we don't just need to be on a cocktail menu and put it in there and say, Oh, it'll sell. We need to get in there, train the bartenders, talk to consumers, run the promotions. So that all costs a lot of money and we're not a, we're not a multinational drinks company. So we, you know, we, we focus in on, you know, we're, we're staying very focused now on, you know, the education is number one to us and then making sure we get product into people's lips because this thing tastes good, right? That's, that's, it does. I was just things. tasting it. It's, it's, it's delicious. It's very smooth. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, uh, it's really good. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the key thing when you're talking about touching, it, it really, it's, it's all about the distiller, right? So, yeah, you know, whiskey. You can you can be a bad, and I'm not saying this anyway, but you can be a bad distiller and hide it with your with your cask selections, right? So right. Now, if you can't get it right off the perfect. still, then you're in trouble. This thing, yeah, this thing comes off at this comes off about sixty five percent alcohol, and then we cut it with water. We rest it. We do rest it for for some time in steel tanks just to just to let it let let this all the sort of all the all the chemical processes actually, which is technical, but let them sort of settle and mellow, and then we put it into a bottle. But, you know, on the nose, it's like if you walk, I'm sure you've walked through many a distillery. Yes. But you know, when you get to the spirit safe at a distillery, you get those really sort of pungent vapors Mm -hmm. that come off that. And that is, you know, it's like the malt. It's, it's, and when you, so you would expect if you've tasted new make whiskey come off a still, and particularly here in the US, like a white lightning, something like that, you're expecting fire and sort of really rough edges. Right. Because we make this with 100% malted barley. There's nothing rough about this whatsoever. And I was I'm just not gonna just ask saying what that. the mash bill was. It's it's hundred percent malted barley. And because of that, it just has this natural sweetness to it. It, does, it, just, it, does. it just it's finishes so and li- it just lingers there for ages. I'm gonna have to taste it with you. Oh, so good. So where do you guys do you grow the barley in, in on that same farm? No, unfortunately we don't have a vertically integrated business there. Um we actually we didn't then end up following through with the with the farmers on the project. Oh, um, but you know, I was sad. Like they were really good guys, um, but you know, some spirits industry is an interesting space to get into. Going from agriculture spirits is not yeah. not everyone's cup of tea, let's say. But we were we had done all the work, and we were like really passionate about this project, so we brought it to life. But to do so, we worked with another distiller, and in, in some ways, it was much more fortunate we did that because we went we went with a traditional malted barley um, mash bill. So rather than using potatoes. We just went 100% malted barley, and it just tasted fantastic. Uh, it and that is. was really so, what our 
Where is the distillery located? And are you guys going to uh, progress into whiskeys as well or no? Well, it, the, the distillery is located in the metropolis of West Cork um, in a place in, in a place called Skibbereen. So it's way out. It's, it's, it takes you three hours to get from Dublin to Cork, or maybe two hours with the new roads. And then it's a further three hours from Cork City out into the, out into the far west of Cork. And it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, but yeah, no, we, they, so they, we make it with, with, in partnership with West Cork Distillers. They're a great partner. They, they really know their stuff. Um, but in terms of whiskey, we actually, we, we already own a whiskey. We have a, we have Egan's Irish whiskey, which is, we're, we're less, we're more into the, um, you know, from a whiskey point of view, we're a bonder and bottler. So we buy up a number of distilleries. We finish it in different casks. We lay down our own new make and things like that. And with, with Mad March Hair, because there's no aging, what we've done is we've developed, we've developed with the master distiller a specific, uh, a specific process in terms of how we, how we finish this or not how we, how we produce this. So it's triple distilled, takes it up to about 65% in, pop, in copper pots. And then we, as I said earlier, we rested in tanks for a certain amount of time until it's perfect. So That's it's, awesome. it, it, it sounds like it shouldn't have too much of an effect on the product, but it really does. It's really no, important it's, that last, this is one of the last best stage. Poutines I've had. It's very good. Thank you. Thank um, you very and much. I, and I'm a big um, single malt barley lover. Yeah. So I can totally taste. That's it, isn't it? I can totally taste the barley in here. Now, you guys also sent over some mule bitters, which I'm going to yeah. pass off to Chef Louise. Classic. It's your classic, uh, classic, um, like your Moscow mule, but we call it obviously the Mad March mule. And a bit of alliteration there. But no, we have, like, with, we actually developed this specifically for a mule. So we worked with a, a small boutique, uh, boutique um, bitters maker in Dublin. So it's made obviously with our pachin base. And then we add in loads of different botanicals and it's steeped. I think it takes about 120 days to make a batch of this. Um, you know, oh, I'd wow. love to tell you how all of the ingredients a, how, in here. How big is the batch? Tiny. <laughs> well, I think we make, we made about, we made about a thousand bottles of this. And really it's, it's more for, again, you know, our investment in education an investment in sort of bringing consumers into, into the oh, journey. Wow. And I think making a, making a bitters that really complements our mule recipe just really elevates the experience. No, so I just put have, a dash. I just put a dash in my, it, it's got like a, it's almost a, a licorice. The cloves, I think it's probably. And cloves, one of the yeah. Licorice and cloves smell. Mm. But it's, uh, it, again, look, oh, these are good. these things, as I say, we just want to really sort of help educate people and bring them into the, uh, bring them into the putching world. And, you know, personally, my, prep, my, my favorite cocktail with it is making like a sour. It just works just incredibly well with that citrus. But I could use sort of place your whiskey from a whiskey sour in there and it just, boom. But, you know, Mad Mar you know, Moscow Mules are a big drink at the moment. And we, you know, we obviously tried it when we were doing all our recipe, right. <laughs> our recipe evaluation. And, uh, yeah, it just really, it really sort of, uh, excited us. And, uh, yeah, so we came out with the bitters just to, uh, support that. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful bitters. I can't wait to try it with other things and to get the ginger beer, mm. um, because I will definitely want to try that. And I know that Louise will have fun with this. So what is the next step for the Mad, Mad March hair? Uh, well, look, we've, we actually, it's funny during COVID, we, we had to obviously change our approach because we're an on-premise centric company, right? So just in general with our portfolio and even more so with a product like Mad March Hair, because we needed to build that base, get people educated on it. But we actually, it's funny enough, we launched it into our e-commerce channels. And funnily enough, 
there were a lot of people in America that wanted to buy Pudgy and that could never get a hold of it because retail distribution was extremely limited. So that kind of opened up a whole new world to us in terms of having that direct consumer uh, communication and conversation. So our next sort of phase of development now is we're restarting our on-premise uh, activity. So we're getting out into the bars again. We're talking to bartenders, rebuilding, rebuilding that sort of interaction because during COVID, you know, we had to prioritize. We're not a we're not a big company, so we don't have resources to throw everywhere. So we kind of have to prioritize our resources here in the U.S. And we, fortunately enough, found that uh, found a new niche within e-commerce. So we're going to continue to build that online e-commerce success. But now we've got. You know, now it's time to get back into the on-premise and really start to build that as well. And that's coupled with making sure our home is, is doing well. So, you know, Irish people, it's funny, Irish people are probably the last people to really get onto putching, you know, in a, in a sort of, and I mean that in a, in a embracing sense, right? right? So I remember we would do events in Ireland and we'd, you know, taste people and you say, do you want to try our new putching? And they'd look at you like you're two heads. Because most, as I started the segment, most people's experience of putching has there's generally going to be a negative one and not just the negative i did 20 shots of tequila in cancun and threw up or right. threw up. It, it, it would go back to having a shot of it when you were a kid i mean i can tell you my personal experience is when i raided my parents liquor cabinet and i think i made a what's called a dolly mixer when you're kids in ireland you take a little bit out of every bottle and there was this unlabeled bottle in the back sure enough it was a bottle of pachin and that was the one that was very pungent and came through and uh I was definitely not well for a few days after that. I bet. But, you know, there's loads of people, there's loads of those stories. But once you once you break that, once you sort of get, get past that sort of challenge, people are like, they embrace it. And so we've, it's very funny. Like we do some, we've done some events in Ireland where you'd have a slow start and then the thing would just take off. Because, you know, once people get past this sort of, they know what it is, but they're scared of it. So once you get past that, right. it's, it's a product that Irish people can be passionate about. And, you know, I, I, not to take a dig at our French colleagues, but, you know, it's an actual Irish product. <laughs> you know, it's right. not owned by some French conglomerate or right. a Mexican conglomerate, et cetera. So, you know, it's something that we think um, we can be su- supremely passionate about and really sort of, we really try and play off the, you know, what's, what's the word I'm going to use? Unashamedly Irish. Uh, and to the point where myself and actually one of the other Pachin brand owners, Dave Mulligan, he owns a brand called Bourne. Um, and so we actually got together a couple of years ago and we said, well, if we're going to really build Pachin, and this is your point about where next, we really need to have the right home back in home, back in Ireland. So we actually opened a bar in Dublin called Bar 1661, which if you remember earlier, 1661 was the year that the, the, the crown started to outlaw Pachin. Right. And so we opened up a bar and it was really to be, uh, you know, all about Pachin, the world's first Pachin bar. Now we do have other Irish products in there and other whiskeys, but it's really focused on, you know, bringing punching drinks to the fore. And is that, and that in, in Dublin or Cork? In Where Dublin. In Dublin. In okay. Dublin, yeah. And like, it's funny, you know, we, uh, that has been a huge, a huge stepping stone for re- really embrace people, getting people to embrace punching. And we actually won world, uh, world, we won Ireland's best cocktail bar uh, the first year we were open. So it was nice. kind of, people recognize the innovation and just doing things different. I think, as I said to you, Irish people are passionate about, you know, products they can really get behind. Um, there's not much more. There's nothing much. There's not a lot that's more Irish than punching. So it's, uh, you know, that's part of the part of the journey, I guess. Is, yeah. So when did question. you guys open the bar? We opened it in uh, March or April. Jeez, it was Good Friday anyway. So Good Friday 2019. Okay. Okay. And the reason we opened Good so Friday just is actually COVID. just before COVID. We got a, We got a good year. 
and then obviously we uh we had to shut the shut shut the doors for a couple of months we still the bar is still there it does very well uh we actually you know i won't bore you with it but we actually got into making uh to-go cocktails nice and we turned it into a brand which has been super successful in ireland on in its own right so it's actually bigger than the bar now for, for which is just part of you know, part of the reputation the brand the, the uh, bar built um, right. building punching anyway very cool. Okay, now where can people buy this if they wanted to go to the e-commerce site? And then in what chains do you know um, are available in the U.S. and in other parts of the world? It'll be on shopmadmarchhair.com. Okay. Um, and that's our, that's our primary e-commerce store. And with that, we do regular giveaways and special deals and stuff like that. So there's, if people want to check that out, that's the, that's the best way to get it in the United States at the moment. In terms of retail chains, we're not in any retail chains at the moment. Because we kind of pull back out of a lot of the traditional distribution. We were with Specs in Texas, and we were in, a, we were in uh, spots of retail distribution. But for us, we're going to take our time to do it right, which means building the on-premise first. Once we get it right in the on-premise, then retail will happen, right? So we're not going to rush it. We're not going to push it out on, onto the shelves until, until we know it's going to sell. You know, it's one of those key learnings we've had from doing this for a couple of years. Well, it is delicious. So anybody out there that is listening or watching, uh, I highly recommend this. It's one of the best I've had. And, um, you know, if you're a, a single malt lover, a barley lover, you're going to like it. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today, John. And uh, of course, we will catch up with you in the future and see how things are following up. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. And thank you for having me today. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. If you like what you've seen on BRC, you'll love what's coming soon in the Barrel Room Parlor. As a member, you'll have exclusive access to various spin-off series, including The Cutting Room Floor and the Telly Award-winning series Kindred Spirits. To create your membership, visit www.barrelroomchronicles.com and click on Become a Member. Once you've chosen your membership level, you'll be able to enjoy all the extra content it has to offer. You'll even be able to participate with the show by commenting on videos and other posts. Don't wait. Sign up today for exclusive content in the Barrel Room Parlor. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Louise. It's so nice to have you here on the show. And today we're going to talk about Mad March Hair. It was so interesting and it was one of the best poutines that I've had in a very long time. So I just wanted to check in with you and see what you thought of it and see what you wanted to do with it today. I loved it as well. Um, might I say it's the first poutine that I have ever had. Wow. So there we are. Uh, the one thing that I, the, immediately upon tasting it, I wanted to use it in a version of a Bloody Mary. Oh. So, okay, hear me out, people. I have been doing a number of different styles of Bloody Marys with with fresh squeezed vegetable juices. One of the ones that I normally do, I call the redheaded Mary. It is with fresh carrot juice and fresh ginger juice. Mm. So I made one with the spirit and it was bomb. Nice. Bomb.com. <laughs> it was delicious. I made a fresh carrot ginger juice. I added fresh horseradish a ton of black pepper, a little bit of fresh celery juice in there as well with the spirit, 
I did not do any fresh chilies. Rather, I just used Tabasco straight from the bottle. And it was amazing. It was a very delicious morning beverage that I think if we had access to in any bar or brunch spot around the neighborhood, it'd be a huge hit. It was delicious. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. Is this a, a type of spirit that you think you would keep trying now that I've introduced it to you? Yes, for sure. I mean, I just, I don't ever see it anywhere in Los Angeles. I mean, I feel maybe I'd find it more on the East Coast, being that I there are more Irish people over there, but of course I would. I mean, yeah, you know me. I'll, I'll eat or drink anything, so bring it on. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, I am uh, can't wait to try that. Uh, bloody Red Bloody Mary, red carrot juice. Red-headed Mary. Red-headed Mary. That sounds fantastic. Red-headed Mary. That's my drink. <laughs> I love it. All right, Louise. Well, thank you so much for your uh, insight on this and your recipe for that beautiful drink. And we will talk to you next week. Sounds great. For show notes on today's episode, please visit www.barrelroomchronicles.com. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. If you really liked it and want to show your support, buy us a whiskey through our Kofi site. If you work in the whiskey industry or run a whiskey bar or club, and you'd like to be featured on Barrel Room Chronicles, register to be a guest through our website. Thanks for joining me. And until next time, Solangeva. Barrel Room Chronicles is a production of First Real Entertainment and is distributed by Anchor FM and is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.